Good evening, Evie Free. Wow. Good evening, Evie Free. There's, there's a couple of us uh, in the house tonight. Well, my name's Austin Helm. Uh, I'm one of the teaching and venue pastors here. Uh, I have to tell you, it's just so good to be here with you, uh, to worship together, to pray together, to read God's word together. If this is your first time here, or this is your 500th time here, we're simply a group of people that are passionate about following Jesus as disciples, connecting as family, and going out into the world as missionaries. Uh, we're, we're primarily passionate about these things because we're, we're passionate about life. We, we've chosen and we've decided that we want to live the absolute best kind of life possible. And we think that we find it in Jesus. At least that's what Jesus says. He says, I've come to give you life and to give it to you abundantly. Uh, one translation says, a life beyond your wildest imaginations and your wildest dreams. Now, this doesn't mean that everything's always easy. It doesn't mean that life is always rainbows and unicorns, but it does promise us the presence of the Holy Spirit to be with us in the highs and the lows, the ups and the downs, the goods and the bads. And so when we gather together, we actually gather together as a community of people that bring all of those experiences into the room. There are some of us in here tonight that we are on the mountain peak and life is just so good. And there are also people in here that you are in the valley and you don't think that it could get any worse. But we're gathered here together because we know that we have the promise of the Holy Spirit. We have the person of Jesus who comes from the Father. And so we gather here because we know that we are running towards the fountain of life which is Jesus himself. And, and so one of the reasons we gather together to, to worship and to pray and to teach is we want to we learn more about this life. And, and so tonight we're going to talk about an aspect of our lives that we all have, but few of us actually engage in. A, a part of our life that is all around us, but oftentimes we tend to ignore it. Uh, tonight we want to talk about our neighbors. <laughs> We want to talk about the people that geographically surround us in this world. Uh, if you're like me, it can be easy to not know my neighbors. It can be easy to not engage with my neighbors. But when we come to the teachings of Jesus, one of the most interesting things that we find that is if we want the fullness of Jesus in our lives... If we want the fullness of life in our lives, we have to become a kind of people that engage with our neighbor. It's not a bonus. It's not an add-on. It's not a peripheral part of our life that we can engage with. For Jesus, the life of the disciple, engaging with his or her neighbor, was fundamental to the life that's found in God. So if you have your Bibles, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 10 this morning. Uh, Luke is a gospel account um, that simply tells about the life, the teachings, uh, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus as historically recorded in the first century. So this is Luke chapter 10 beginning in verse 25. Uh, the text says this. It says, on one occasion... An expert in the law stood up to, to test Jesus. A teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
Jesus responds, what is written in the law? Or other words, how do you read it? Uh, The lawyer responds, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, well done. You've answered correctly. Uh, Do this and you will live. Uh, But the lawyer interjects one more time and says, uh, but Lord, who's my Who's my neighbor? And Jesus, instead of responding directly to him, Jesus tells him a story beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, uh, imagine a man, a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. Uh, They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and uh, when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Uh, So too, a Levite, when he came to the same place and saw the same person, he also passed by on the other side. But there was a Samaritan. As the Samaritan traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw this same man in the same place, he took compassion and pity on him. Uh, The Samaritan went to him and and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Uh, The next day, he took out two denarii, and he gave them to the innkeeper. He says, look after him, he said. And when I return, I I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. And then Jesus asks the lawyer, um, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Uh, Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Uh, This is a story about neighboring. Uh, This is a story about engaging with our neighbors. Uh, And more importantly, it's not a a Mr. Rogers kind of how to engage uh, with your neighbor. This is a how to be like Jesus kind of neighboring. This is actually a how, how can I access the very life of God kind of neighboring. And so tonight, we just want to look at this for a couple minutes. And we want it to challenge us. We want it to change the way we see the world and hopefully move on us in such a way that we walk out of this room differently than the way that we came in. You know, the scriptures say that these words of Jesus, they're powerful. They're dynamic. They're active, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide soul from spirit and bone from marrow. And so we just want to pause for a moment. And we want to allow these scriptures to speak to us. And so before we go any further into the talking and teaching about these powerful words, can we simply pray together? Father, we, uh, we pause for a moment knowing that we're opening your word. We're opening your teachings. Uh, we are opening something that comes from the Father spoken by Jesus and now inspired by the Holy Spirit in our lives. And, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, that as we as we talk about these things, as we read from your words, as we begin to unpack it, that Holy Spirit, you would come and you would do what only you can do, which is to shape us and to change us and to form us. And so Holy Spirit, we are asking with great desperation that you would help us to walk out of this room differently than the way that we came in. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, Just a quick question. Uh, Are there any runners in the house? Like anybody, like you wake up in the morning and you have to go for a run? 
or, you, or right before you go to bed, just do a show of hands, are there any runners in the house? There's like a couple of us, uh, which means that the majority of us have learned our lesson. Uh, running is not the best way to live. I, in fact, you should only be running if someone is chasing you or if you are chasing a Pokemon. Uh, which, if you have the Pokemon app, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what the Pokemon app is, you're in great company. Uh, you're doing well. But I, I remember running cross country. Uh, there was a season when I was a runner, and, and I remember the feeling of fatigue after running. Uh, for some of you that ran or you played football or baseball or basketball you're, or a swimmer, and, and when you came out of athletics and you came out of a practice or a game, you felt absolutely fatigued and you may have thought to yourself, why did I just do that? Why did I voluntarily put myself through that? You see, fatigue is never a good feeling, but it doesn't just come from athletics. Uh, I remember growing up, my folks would tell me, Austin, one day uh, you're going to work a job in which you work about 40 hours a week. Uh, the average work week is now about 45 to 50 hours. Some of us in this room are working 55, 60, 65 hours. And if you've ever worked a long week and you get home on Friday night, you know that you can be absolutely exhausted absolutely fatigued, and the only words on your mind is, how can I get an easier job? Uh, for most of us, the most fatiguing part about our job is the commute. Uh, I'm from Oklahoma. Uh, the, the, getting acquainted and normalized to Orange County, Los Angeles traffic has been quite the adjustment. In fact, if I leave super early in the morning or if I leave super late at night, my commute is about 35 minutes, which is like, if you went to the city the center of the city in Oklahoma, and you drove 35 minutes in any direction, you'd be scared. You'd be scared because you'd be miles and miles. You'd be about 25 minutes from the nearest person. Like Oklahoma's just small. Uh, but if I leave at the wrong time during the day, I can be in traffic for about an hour. A and I'm stuck just looking at those bright red taillights, those brake lights. By the time I get to work, uh, my right foot is exhausted from gas, brake, gas, brake. And it's just this feeling of fatigue that I wish I didn't have to deal with. And if you've ever worked a long week, uh, I remember when I was younger, my folks would stay at home on a Friday night and I thought, man, my folks are so lame. And now I go home and I'm so thankful to be at home after a long work week and all I want to do is go to sleep. So I have a roommate who will go out. I'm like, man, see you later. I'm staying at home. But have you ever gone to sleep and uh, on a good night, you sleep maybe eight hours, like on a good night and you wake up the next morning and you just feel like you've been hit by a two by four. Like you wake up and you thought, man, I'm going to sleep for a long time because I want to feel more rested but you wake up and you actually feel worse. You actually feel more tired. And so you think, man, I just need to go back to sleep. Like you feel that kind of fatigue. Like fatigue is a, is a difficult place to be. I remember being in Austin, Texas. Uh, I learned about a new kind of fatigue um, and it was called compassion fatigue. Has anybody in here ever experienced compassion fatigue? You, you just run out of all your compassion. You've run out of all your care. You've run out of all your love. You're just kind of at your end. You know, I, I think the reason um, people develop compassion fatigue is that there are um, some interesting people in the world. Uh, we don't want to use the word weird. We'll use the word special. Uh, there are special people in the world, and the longer you live, the more special people you meet. 
And the more special people you meet, the more fatigued you are dealing with the special people. In fact, I just got, a, uh, I just got an Instagram account like three or four months ago. Uh, some of you are thinking, wow, you're really late to the party. And some of you are thinking, what's Instagram? I'm like somewhere right in the middle. Uh, and there are actually, if you know what Instagram is, there are entire Instagram accounts dedicated to interesting people. Now in Tulsa, Oklahoma, I grew up with Walmart. Walmart was just like, it was my jam. If we needed food, if we needed clothes, if we needed school supplies, like we were going to the nearest Walmart. And then I found out there was an Instagram account called People of Walmart, which is about, it's about photos of interesting people. And I laugh when I see it, but then I think, wow, is that my family? Um, The the same is true of uh, uh, fitness. There's this great account that I follow. Um, I typically tend to lean towards 24-hour fitness, uh, but there's a a fitness place called Planet Fitness. Uh, And if you go to Planet Fitness, no no dig on you, but there's an account called People of Planet Fitness that shows some interesting folks uh, working out at Planet Fitness. And and so I'm thinking about the kinds of people that are interesting in this world, uh, the kinds of people that possibly could bring me compassion fatigue. And I really thought of two kinds of people. Uh, The first kind of people um, are people, I like to, are any coffee folks in the house? Any tea folks in the house? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm a coffee shop person, but that's not true. That's not, I'm not a coffee shop person. I'm a Starbucks person. Like, that is my jam. That is my place. If, if, if I say, hey, let's go get coffee, and you say, oh, that sounds great. Let's go to Coffee Bean. I'm like, wow, you're interesting. Like, you're special. Like, it's just, but it's just me. But then people are like, man, I see you at Starbucks all the time. You're interesting. You're special. Uh, so th- there's this whole brand of people that will go to any coffee shop. I- I'm simply a Starbucks person. Uh, I think those kinds of people are interesting. Uh, and then there's this group of people, uh, which you may be able to resonate with this. You may not be able to. It's my neighbors. It's the people that live around me. If you were to ask me, Austin, what are your neighbors like? This is what I'd say to you. I'd say, well, um, they're, they're pretty quiet. They kind of keep to themselves. Uh, they come and they go at interesting hours. I don't really know what they do. I, if I'm honest with you, I, my neighbors are kind of weird. And that's what I'd say. But here's what I know. If you went and talked to my neighbors and you said, hey, what is the guy that lives below you or above you like? They would think about me and they'd say, well, he's kind of quiet. He kind of keeps to himself. He comes and goes at interesting times. I think my neighbor's like kind of weird. In fact, this is kind of a phenomenon in America is that we tend to keep to ourselves when it comes to our neighbors. In fact, most of us, when we move into a new place, uh, for some reason, at least for 24 hours, uh, we have this vision of grandeur of what our neighbors are going to be like. Like, oh my gosh, they're going to be just like me. They're going to have my same interests, my same hobbies. Like, they're going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait to meet my neighbors. And then you might meet a couple of them. The first night you're there, they bring you some brownies or they bring you some cookies. Uh, You're so thankful. You meet their names and then you don't talk to them for 30 years. Uh, That that tends to be how neighboring works. In fact, there are stats that go along with this. Uh, We're going to pull up a little tic-tac-toe board for you. Uh, There was a group in Denver uh, that did a study on the art of neighboring. And uh, the tic-tac-toe board, um, it has eight squares on the outside and one in the middle. And they did a study with folks. They, They surveyed a whole bunch of people. Uh, you can imagine that your house is in the middle and these are the people around you. They could be uh, 
10 feet away or 10 inches away, knowing how California is. But they went around, they asked the whole group of people, we just want you to go around, don't worry about last names, but if you can just give us the first name of everybody that lives in the houses around you, we'd really appreciate it. Uh, This group from the Art of Neighboring found that less than 40% of Americans were able to name the first names only of the people that lived in the houses around them. And from that same group of people, they said, now we just want you to give us a fact about them. Not a secret, uh, not something dear to their heart, not something that's, that's close to their personality. Just let us know that like they drive a green Aerostar minivan or that they bike to work or that they are up before the sun rises. Just give us one thing. Less than 3% of the population were able to give a fact about everybody that lived around them. Now, we're just talking about, we're not talking about the whole neighborhood. We're talking about just the eight people geographically around them. And then with the same group of people, they said, now we want you to give us like, give us like something heartfelt. Like, where do they work? Where do their kids go to school? Where are they originally from? Like something that has to do with their story. And less than 1% of the population was able to do this with everybody surrounding their house or their apartment or their dorm room. You see, in America, there's, a, there's like a stigma to our neighbors. In fact, our homes aren't neighborhoods. They're places where we kind of lock ourselves up. We're in school all day. We are at work all day. Uh, we're on the job all day with our families all day. And when we come home, the last people in the world we want to talk to are our neighbors. And in fact, if, and the big word if, if we have anybody to our house, typically it's not our neighbors. It's people that we have stumbled upon in the real world that tend to share our same interests and our same hobbies and our same stage of life. Uh, but for Jesus... For Jesus, being deeply engaged with your neighbors was not like a bonus of discipleship. It wasn't something that you could add on to discipleship. Instead, it was absolutely fundamental to discipleship. In fact, um, he tells this story. uh, And in the story, uh, Jesus is teaching a crowd. And in the first century, uh, when you would teach, oftentimes it would be a space like this, uh, minus the walls, minus the air conditioning, minus the lights and the sound system, but keep the blazing hot sun. And that's kind of the scenario you have in the first century. And and in a place like that, uh, most of the folks would sit, uh, but the teacher or the rabbi would sit just above the rest of the folks so that everyone could see him, so they could hear him. And so you'd have a bunch of people just kind of seated amongst and around the rabbi, just like this. But a startling image approaches in Luke chapter 10. Uh, it, it says that there's, a, um, that there's a lawyer among the crowd, and he's sitting with everybody else, and he's in a situation a lot like this. And the text says that the lawyer... As Jesus is teaching, seating, seated among the people, he, he stands up in front of everybody. And you can imagine kind of the hush that would fall over the room, like, what's about to happen? They know who Jesus is. Uh, the text says that this is an expert in the law, simply meaning he's an expert in the Old Testament. He's an expert in the first five books of the Bible. And so uh, you can imagine this hush 
And so he's standing and Jesus is probably seated. And, and the text says that he wants, to, he wants to test Jesus. But that word for test is more like the word for trap. Uh, he wants to catch Jesus in a misstep. But he asks a universal question. He asks a question that we have all asked at one point in our life and that we will all inevitably ask again. He asks Jesus, teacher, how can I inherit eternal life? Now, certainly in the first century, when you talk about eternal life, you're talking about a season, a, a temporal season that happens after the grave. But in the first century, not only are you talking about the temporal season that happens after the grave, uh, you're talking about the qualitative type of life that you can live here and now. Uh, eternal life being a life filled with joy, filled with peace, filled with goodness, filled with the presence of God. And so here's this lawyer saying, Jesus, how do I inherit the abundant life? How do I inherit the best kind of life? And uh, Jesus simply looks at the teacher of the law, this expert, and um, he says, well, what does the law say? Or, or, or in other words, how do you read it? The text actually says, how do you read it? Uh, and I would imagine the guy should have said, well, just like everybody else, top to bottom, right to left with my eyes. Like, that's how you read. Uh, but that's not the question that Jesus is asking. Uh, you see, uh, when, he, when he asked the, the lawyer this question, he says, what does the law say about inheriting the best kind of life? A life filled with joy, and with peace, and with goodness, and with the presence of God. And the lawyer standing up in front of Jesus says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, this, this is a, it's, it's an interpretive question that Jesus has asked, and the lawyer has answered it. So you actually had a... Um, you had a couple of different kinds of parties in the first century. And they're all trying to answer the question, what's the best way to live? How do we fully access the presence of God? How do we inherit eternal life? And both of the parties agreed on this one thing. Uh, they agreed that the way to inherit eternal life, the best kind of life, was to give their whole heart undivided, their fullest allegiance to Yahweh. In other words, to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind, with all their strength. And then the next question is, but how? How do you do it? What's, what's the best way to do it? And, and so you have these two groups of people, and, and one of the groups would say this. One of the groups would take this from Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, and they would say, we want to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength, and we think the best way to do that is to be holy, just as God is holy. And now when you talked about holiness, you were talking about ritual purity. You were talking about the kinds of foods you can and can't eat, the kind of places you can and can't go, the kinds of people you can and can't interact with. 
You see, when you ask somebody, what's the best way to love God? They would say there's a variety of ways, but they're ranked. They aren't all equal. And so one camp would say the best way to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength is to be holy just as God is holy. But then there was another camp, and this other camp actually said something different. They said, that's important. Being holy just as God is holy is super important. But we think the best way to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength is by loving our neighbor as ourself. Uh, but, but sometimes these two uh, paradigms, these two ways of, of doing life were actually in conflict with one another. Uh, people would have to make choices at certain times. So Jesus says, what does the law say? How do you read it? By what way will you love God most in your life? And the lawyer says, I'm with this camp. I need to love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus says, yeah, you've got it right. Do this, and you will inherit the very thing you are looking for. I mean, this, this could be the end of the story. He says, if you do that, you will live. You'll live with the presence of God and the peace of God and the joy of God. Dude, you got it. Uh, but the, the lawyer extends the story for us. And the text says he wants to justify himself. And so he says, well, Jesus, who's, who's my neighbor? And, and so uh, what he's really saying is I, I'm kind of a people pleaser. And that, that's actually me as well, even now. I'm, I'm like a recovering people pleaser. Uh, I kind of want to make everybody happy. And so this man, he's trying to answer the question, how do I love God best? And, and he's trying to love his neighbor as himself and be holy just as God is holy. And as a result, he's in this tug of war. And inevitably, the best way to love your neighbor as yourself while abiding by all of the ritual laws would be to make your neighbor a very small circle. If I don't have a lot of neighbors, I won't be inconvenienced by possible places I might need to go, people I may need to interact with, things that I can eat. So if I can make this circle really, really small, then I can also do this over here. And if I'm doing both really well at the same time, that's got to be the best way. And so he asked this question, who is my neighbor? And Jesus, uh, sitting there in front of this group of people, he launches into a story. He says, imagine a man who's walking from Jericho to Jerusalem. Now, it's, if you ever walk that road, uh, it, it was an interesting road. It was actually a very turbulent, violent, dangerous road to walk precisely because of the thing that happens to the man on the journey. It says he's walking and he's overcome by robbers and they strip him of his clothes, take him of everything that he has, beat him and leave him half dead. Uh, so here you have a man and it's interesting because Jesus doesn't tell us what kind of man this is like? Is he a Jew or is he a Samaritan? We don't know. 
Is he rich or is he poor? We don't know. He doesn't have any clothes or possessions left. Is he religious or non-religious? We we don't know. All we know is that it's a man whose life is hanging in the balance, who's all alone on this long, treacherous journey, and without the aid of somebody, he will certainly perish. And so Jesus says that there are three kinds of people that walk by this man. And growing up, I oftentimes heard that um, the reason the first two had passed by him is they were simply in a hurry and that they didn't care. But when we find, when we kind of dig into the context is that the priest and the Levite are making a judgment call about the best way to love God. So, so they're walking on the same road as this man. And, and, and as they come along this man, they see somebody and He's not wearing any clothes, so they don't know if they can identify him as a Jew or a Samaritan. He doesn't have any possessions on him. They can't identify him as rich or poor. Uh, Just by simply looking at him, they can't tell if he's religious or not religious. And in fact, they can't even tell if he's dead or alive. He's half dead. I mean, this man is completely unidentifiable. And so you, you can imagine the priest even getting close to the man. Not too close though, because if he touches him and he's dead, he becomes ceremonially unclean. If he touches him and finds out he's a Samaritan, he becomes ceremonially unclean. Uh, If he touches him and finds out he's just kind of a non-religious, as they called, uh, sinner and tax collector, he becomes unclean. So as he gets closer to this person, he asks the question to himself, how do I best love God in this moment? What's the best way here to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all my strength? And so the priest makes a judgment call that in this moment, it is better to remain holy and ceremonially clean. And so the priest continues on his way. And Jesus says that the same kind of thing happens with the Levite. The Levite is coming by and he sees the man and he probably gets close in the same kind of way and he's asking the same kinds of questions. Is he a Samaritan? Is he a Gentile? Uh, Is he a sinner? Is he dead? And so he asked the question, how can I best love God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength? Then he makes a judgment call and says, I think the best way to do it is to be holy, just as God is holy, and to remain pure. And so the man gets up and he walks along. And if you were telling this story in traditional fashion, uh, the hero of the story would be um, some law-observing, kind of middle-class, peasant, normal Jew. And they would come along and they'd be the hero of the story. But instead, Jesus just turns the cart upside down. He says, and so there's a Samaritan. A Samaritan who comes by. And when the Samaritan comes to the same place, sees the same person, and asks the same questions. Is he Gentile? Is he Samaritan? Is he Jewish? Is he rich? Is he poor? Is he religious? Is he non-religious? You see, Samaritans, they read the Torah as well. Samaritans abided by purity laws. They abided by the holiness code. They didn't read anything after Torah, but they deeply observed Torah. And so here's a Samaritan next to the man asking the same questions. But then the primary question, what's the best way to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, 
and with all my strength in this moment. The Samaritan chooses to love this man as he would love himself, unknowing if he's Jew, Gentile, rich or poor, religious or non-religious. So the text says that he deeply inconveniences himself. Uh, he, He gets the man and he has wounds and he begins to bandage up the wounds. He pours oil and wine to help heal these cuts and these scrapes and these scars. And then it says he puts the man on his donkey and carries this man to the local inn and stays a night with the man. When this Samaritan gets up the next day, he pays the innkeeper and he says, and if this man occurs you any more charges while I'm gone, I'll be back and I will repay you whatever I need to. Uh, This Samaritan man doesn't just love his neighbor. He spends his time, his energy, his resources to love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength by loving this unidentifiable man as himself. In fact, when the Samaritan comes back, this man won't be at the hotel anymore. He'll be unidentifiable. The man will never be able to pay the Samaritan back. He won't be able to track down the Samaritan to say thank you so much. He can't can't give him the denarii back. He can't do anything for him. And so Jesus looks at the lawyer and asks the lawyer a different question. You see, the lawyer, the entire time that this is happening, he's, he's wondering, is the man that's half dead, is he a neighbor? I wanna know. Because if he isn't a neighbor, it makes my life easier. If he is a neighbor, it makes my life more difficult. But Jesus doesn't ask, was the man on the ground a neighbor? Jesus asked the question, who was a neighbor to the man? And all of a sudden, Jesus has just radically reversed this lawyer's question. The lawyer that tried to trap Jesus, Jesus has now essentially trapped this man that is standing alone in front of the crowd. And the man is surely embarrassed, ashamed. Kind of like, man, I wish I wasn't here right now. Have you been in one of those moments? <laughs> wish I could get out of this. And the man says, the one who was a neighbor was the one who had mercy on him. And uh, Jesus says, if you want life, if you want to inherit life, if you want to inherit the peace and the presence of God, go and do likewise. Love God. The fundamental commandment. Give your complete strength and allegiance to God by loving God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength by loving your neighbor as yourself. You see, there are some great ways that we can love God. We can love God through worship. We can love God through prayer. We can love God through study. We can love God through the gathering together of God's people. And these are all amazing, wonderful, beautiful things. And we will always champion those things. But at least in this story, the best way, the most fundamental way to love God was by loving your neighbor. Uh, you know, but oftentimes we, we kind of opt out. We think that's like a bonus. 
It's something extra that we can do. But Jesus, no, this is fundamental. Uh, and then we, uh, or I should say we, I should say I, uh, I just don't think Jesus knows how weird our neighbors are. That's what I actually think. I think if you actually knew how weird and socially awkward and disruptive my neighbors were, you would have said, no, you should just stay inside your apartment and listen to worship music and pray. Just hang out with other Christians. Like, you'll be good. Uh, But the reality is, is that Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he hasn't already done himself. In fact, John chapter 1 verse 14 will say, and the word, the Torah God's of law became flesh and dwelled among us, lived among us. One translation will say that the word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood. See, Jesus, when he's growing up with his family as a little guy and possibly as an older guy, he's probably in a one, one bedroom house with his entire family, sharing a wall with his neighbors. And Jesus knows that his neighbors can keep him up at night when he's trying to sleep. Or that the neighbors on the other side, because of their work schedule, they they can wake him up in the morning earlier than he wants to be. Uh, He knows how angry and how broken the marriage is behind him. And he knows how socially awkward the people are in front of him. Like Jesus knows neighbors. Jesus took on flesh and blood and bone and, and he moved into the neighborhood. But still we say, ah, Jesus, we don't think you really know so Jesus, at one point, he's, he's teaching his disciples. Uh, he's teaching these people that would, that would want to live the way of God, the kingdom of God. And uh, he looks at him and says, you guys are really nice. But you're only nice to the people that are nice to you. Everybody does that. It doesn't make you different. I'm looking at you. you. You guys are actually really generous, but you're only generous to people that are generous to you. What reward is there in that? You guys are really kind and you're really friendly, but you're just kind and friendly to the people that are kind and friendly to you. Everybody knows how to do that. But instead, the call of discipleship, the call of following Jesus, the call of inheriting life is to be like the Father who is good and faithful and generous to the wicked and the unrighteous and the mean, and the stingy, and the rude. And Jesus says, in the same way, be good and merciful to people just as your heavenly Father has been merciful to you. This idea of neighboring, it's actually one of the most fundamental parts about being a disciple about loving God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. You see, if we aren't careful, um, we, we can sometimes get in this, uh, this interesting space in which, and it's not a bad space, it's just probably not the best space in which we want to love God by being holy just as God is holy. And so we kind of escape from bad people and rude people and stingy people. And, and we make our circle really small. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. It's just, it's not the best thing. Like if you really want life, if you really want the best kind of life, that, that kind of life of 
escaping and making your circle small just doesn't work. It's not going to bear the fruit you would hope that it does. Instead of a life of escaping, Jesus calls his people to a life of engaging. Engaging with the rude and the broken and the hurt. Engaging with our neighbors, but we are so quick to opt out. We're so quick to opt out simply because we think our neighbors are weird. And we think they're awkward and we think they're strange. We think they're so strange. In fact, statistically, I know this isn't true of this church because we're so nice and we're so awesome. But statistically, 60% of us cannot name all the names of the people that live around us. Statistically, less than 3% of us can name a fact about every house around us. And statistically, less than 1% of us can say something substantial about the people that are living around us. Um, Church is going to make it really, really hard to love our neighbor. It's going to make it really hard to be generous to our neighbor. It's going to make it really hard to be loving and kind to our neighbor, regardless of how awesome or not awesome they are, how wealthy or not wealthy they are, how generous or not generous they are. You see, church, there is something about neighboring. There's something about the place that we've been put in and the people that have not by our control, and trust me, I would love to control the people that live around me. Uh, there's been people that I didn't ask to be placed around me that are around me. And, I, I, and I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to me. And I think it might resonate with you. This is actually true. This was just, um, this was like two days ago. I live in this, like, I, I, it's a good space. It's an interesting space because it's, there's three units. There's a staircase in the very back that connects them all together, but you shouldn't really go in other people's apartments because it's like strange and weird. But I'm locked out one day and I have to get inside, but I know there's this back staircase I don't have access to, but if you live in the top or the bottom, you do. I haven't heard the people below me in a while sitting there out of town. Um, And so I think the person above me may be there. So I walk upstairs, I knock on the door, and it's one of my special, interesting, weird neighbors. Um, And I don't know his name. I say, hey! He says, hey, neighbor. Hey, neighbor. I'm locked out of my house. I think there's a stairwell in the back. If I can just scoot back there and get down there and get in my apartment, we'll be good. He's like, oh, yeah. He's like, he's actually a nice guy. Let's meet at the staircase, and I walk down, and I get in. I'm like, I'm such a doofus. I didn't even learn his name. And so then last night, it's about 10 p.m., and I'm sitting outside, and I'm, I'm thinking about this message, and he leaves his apartment at 10 p.m., which only verifies to me that he comes and goes at strange hours, and that he's weird. And I just look at him, and I say, see you, neighbor. He says, see you, neighbor. I missed the opportunity again. I only say these things to say that I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to me, and I think that you might resonate with it. But man, I want life. I want more of Jesus. I want to inherit a life that is full of his presence and his peace and his goodness. And if a fundamental part of that is being a good neighbor, I got a long way to go but I want to go. I want to stretch myself. And so uh, I'm going to encourage you guys with a challenge that I'm challenging myself with this week. Uh, And that is, I I want to challenge everybody um, 
to evaluate the neighbors that live around you. And you may be part of the 60% that knows everybody's name uh, or the less than 40%. And that's you, kudos. But if you're with me and you're part of the majority, I'm gonna go to the people above me and the people below me. And I'm gonna say, I'm so embarrassed. I've been living here for nine months and I just, I actually don't know your name. My name's Austin. They'll hopefully introduce themselves and not slam the door in my face. And I'll just begin this process of actually opting in to the possibility of being a good neighbor. Like it's just a first step. And then the the folks that are above me, the ones that let me down, I'm gonna invite him to Starbucks because there's one right down the street. And I love Starbucks. And I'm saying, man, I'm gonna buy you a cup of coffee. Come with me. Just wanna hear your story because I don't know any of it. And I'm going to tell you, learning their name doesn't make me a good neighbor. I haven't even begun to bandage up wounds and to pour my resources on their brokenness and to sit with them in a time of grieving. I haven't even started to do that because I can't do it because I don't know their names. But I want to be that kind of person. If I were to ask Jesus, how do I inherit life? And he responds by being a good neighbor. Man, I'll go. I'll do it. And it'll be so awkward. And it'll be so worth it. And so that's the challenge. And in closing, I I encourage us that this isn't neighboring, like, to be a good neighbor. Like, this isn't like a Mr. Rogers kind of neighboring. This is the kind of neighboring that God did first. This is the kind of neighboring that Jesus did first. This is the kind of neighboring in which we access the life of God because in this kind of neighboring, we are most like God. Which is a beautiful thing to be. Can we pray together? Father, we, um, we pause and we are so struck by these words we are so challenged by these words God we're we're here because we want to love you with all of our hearts with all of our soul with all of our mind with all of our strength and we want to learn to do it by loving our neighbor as ourself And Holy Spirit, we come here in deep confession knowing that for most of us, for 99% of us statistically, we have a long way to go. But God, we want to move from where we are to where you would have us. And so Holy Spirit, as we worship, would would you do something in us? Would you stir us? Would you strengthen us? Would you surround us with people that'll help us? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Let's spend a few extra moments worshiping together.